And as you're seated, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Book of Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, as you turn there, last Sunday we looked at how important the incarnation of Jesus is to understanding God's love for us. And specifically, we saw that Jesus took on true humanity so that he could become our neighbor in order to love us as himself. And my hope is that we came away believing that Christmas is about God's compassionate, saving, healing, restoring, committed, neighborly love, and that it clarified and deepened what we mean, or at least what we should mean, uh, when we say that God loves us. We should mean, in case it needs any more clarity, uh, that the triune's God, triune God's love embraces the mess, endures the cost, and chooses the road of committed, sacrificial, expensive, expansive compassion in order to save us and restore us and bring us home. Uh, my hope for this morning is similar. Uh, though instead of being about God's love, it's about a little talked about character trait of God, his sympathy. Uh, so as Christians, we often say that God understands. But what do we mean when we say that God understands? Do we mean that God understands imaginatively? Or do we mean that God understands experientially? Uh, there's a big difference between imaginative understanding and experiential understanding. Uh, I have never given birth. Uh, I've never had cancer, and I've never experienced racism or oppression. Now, given all, all that's true, I have the ability to imaginatively understand these things. I can think about times of intense pain I've been in, or sicknesses I've had, or injustices I've faced. And then with that baseline and through asking questions and paying attention to lots of different stories, uh, I can use my imagination and get an idea of what those things are, are like. And that has value because if I can imagine what it's like, then that allows me to be kind and understanding and helpful. It helps me be merciful. It helps me rejoice with the rejoicing and weep with the weeping. And, and that's good, right? Because as Christians who are called to live like Jesus in the world, we need the ability to stand with someone in their experience, even if we have not had that exact experience ourselves. And that, kids, is what sympathy is. Sympathy is the ability to understand what someone is feeling and then to join them in that feeling. And then so you can show them mercy and compassion. So if someone's sad, you can join them in being sad. If someone's happy, you can join them in being happy and show them in that way the mercy and kindness of God. We need that from people. Uh, but as valuable as imaginative sympathy is, sympathy that comes from experience, I think, is often much more valuable. Uh, the mercy and the kindness and the helpfulness that comes from knowing experientially the, the pressures and the temptations and the feelings and the thoughts of, a, of an experience that tends to produce greater wisdom in how to enter into that helpfully. It tends to produce much more enduring patience and kindness as well as you enter into it. In my experience, imaginative empathy tends to run out before experiential empathy does. And so in terms of the struggle against temptation, sin, suffering, the difficulty of obedience, the sacrifices of love, the struggles for relational repair, the cost of forgiveness, mourning, grieving, all of that, when we say that God understands, do we mean that God understands these things imaginatively or experientially? 
And then related to that, when we talk about God's mercy and compassion, do we believe that we're getting the kind of mercy and compassion that God imagines is useful? Or do we believe we get the mercy and compassion from God that he knows is useful? Uh, you can probably see where I'm going with all of this. Uh, and, and I'm going there because in our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that God's sympathy is experiential, and therefore his mercy and his compassion are full of knowledge and wisdom and real help. And this morning, beloved, God wants us to know that because of the incarnation, he has this experiential sympathy, and with it, wise, helpful compassion and mercy for us. So at Christmas, Jesus doesn't just become our neighbor in order to love us. He also becomes our neighbor in order to sympathize with us and so give us hope that his mercy and compassion are enduringly full of wisdom and grace. Uh, let's look at that this morning. Our points are on the wall. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, verse 10. Let's hear God's word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Father, thank you so much for your word, uh, which, is, uh, which tells us about our Lord Jesus Christ's ability to sympathize with us as our great high priest. Father, we want to know this deeply in our hearts so that we can hold fast our confession and draw near with confidence uh, but we know that it will only have an effect in our lives if your spirit blesses your word to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us now ears to hear your word, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts be uh, pleasing now in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so our passage begins with an encouragement to hold fast our confession of faith. And the author does that because the church that he's writing to is facing uh, an intense amount of pressure. At the end of the letter, we find out some of the reasons why. Uh, some of the Christians in the church have been imprisoned because of their faith. Some had, had, it appears, been martyred for their faith. But it wasn't only martyrdom pressures. 
uh, like going to jail or dying for the faith that the church experienced. It was also social pressure. When you read through the letter, you'll realize that some of the church were being pushed out of the marketplace, not being able to buy and sell their, their goods. Uh, so it was very hard for someone to sell the things that they made, and it was very hard for them to purchase what they needed. And that was causing them not just to worry about feeding their families, but actually making them struggle to put food on the table. And speaking of families, some in the church were apparently also being ostracized by their families. Kids, ostracized means being intentionally excluded. Uh, so if you ever heard someone say at lunch, you can't sit with us, uh, or, you know, at recess, you can't play with us, go away. That's ostracism. That's what was happening to Christians within their families and their friends because of their faith in Jesus. They were experiencing, you see, the words of Christ himself when he, say that he said that he came to bring a sword that would divide people one from another, mother against daughter, father against son. And uh, like we talked about several weeks ago, the mystery of that division is that Jesus, in the long run, uses it to bring real peace and allow his people to be real peacemakers as we embrace each other through the gospel of, of Christ. But, but that's the long term. In the short term, there's division. And with that division comes suffering, and with that suffering comes pressure. So there's the, the pressure of jail and martyrdom. There's the pressure of financial insecurity. There's the pressure of being divided and excluded, ostracized from your family and friends. And, and that's on top of the normal everyday pressures like temptation and sin and guilt and the, the work of obedience. So it's a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. And understandably, the church that he's writing to, and we're not exactly where the church was that he wrote this to, but wherever they were, a number of them were apparently seriously entertaining the idea of relieving some of this pressure by giving up Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And since we're talking about sympathy, uh, let's sympathize with that thought for a second. If you're facing jail, death, hunger, alienation from your family and friends because of Jesus on top of the normal struggles of everyday life, doesn't it make sense to think, well, you know, if I give up Jesus, though I may still have all these normal problems that everyone else has, wouldn't I get my family back and my job back and my life back? Right? Like, isn't giving up Jesus like playing a country song backwards? Isn't that what it means? Not everyone laughed at that. Too, yes, thank you, thank you. Too, too, many, too many country music fans in here, I guess. Anyway, that's where the church was. Uh, now, very interestingly, when God inspires this letter to encourage them in the midst of this intense pressure that he understands, uh, he doesn't add to that pressure by starting off with an angry rebuke. He doesn't say, listen, you ingrates, what's wrong with you? That's not what, what Jesus does. No, instead, he very gently and profoundly shows them why Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the life that you want to return to because in him is the peace and the joy of redeemed, healed relationships with God and his people. Don't give that up. Have your best life now. Have a redeemed life with Jesus. And Jesus is bigger than the truly big pressures you're facing because he's the God who holds it all in his providential hands. Jesus is in control. Don't give up. God has got you. You're safe in his hands. Jesus is nearer, he says, than whatever helper or savior you might be thinking of going to. 
uh, instead of Jesus because Jesus actually surrounds you with his spirit. He indwells you with his presence. You cannot find a Savior who is closer than Jesus. And on top of all of that, Jesus is also working to bring relief to these pressures in a way that, while you may not be able to see it yet, will actually bring God's kingdom more fully into your life and into the lives of those around you. Jesus is bringing his kingdom out into the world. Now, it's very interesting, and I think it's, it's helpful here as kind of an aside. The Bible has a way of describing the betterness of Jesus and the pain of following Jesus and holding them together in a way that I think is very helpful. Uh, the Bible frequently describes the arrival of God's kingdom as a birth. This is one of Jesus' favorite metaphors. And as with any birth where there's joy at the end, there's pain involved before that joy of life arrives. So here, there's pain as Jesus overturns idols and powers in the world. And as he reveals sin and exposes divisions and their real causes and holds out real remedies of uh, not papering over differences, but repentance and love and acceptance and mercy and forgiveness. And, and that pain of having all these things exposed and revealed, it, like the pain of childbirth, is necessary in order for the new life of Jesus to arrive. You see, in, in his wisdom, Jesus brings the joy of peace through these hard things. And he uses easier things too, but also through these hard things, he uses them uh, even though they carry so much pressure with them. And so it's in the context of all of these intense hard things that the author wants them to see that Jesus is better, bigger, nearer, and working in their life. He says, you're experiencing the, the pressures of, of birth, uh, the birth pains that in God's mercy will ultimately yield the joy and life of the kingdom of God if you stay connected to Jesus. I mean, it's a beautiful message, right? It's a, it's a powerful message. Uh, but here's the issue. This is why I think the author of Hebrews didn't stop after chapter four. Uh, if you're in a place of intense suffering, all of that can sound like pie-in-the-sky theory. Can it sound at best like intellectual sympathy that's putting everything off to the future but is not paying attention to the present? And so to help them and to help us hold fast our confession of faith in the storms of life, in the midst of great pressure and heartache and mourning and struggle, Jesus shifts gears here to talking about his experiential sympathy. Jesus understands what it means to maintain faithfulness, love, and mercy when weak and under pressure. So in verse 14, 14, we're told, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. <clears throat> uh, now, when Jesus is called our high priest, that role is drawn, as many of you probably know from the Old Testament, and that role of high priest has several functions. The high priest was the mediator of God's justice and his mercy. So he stood between God's justice and the people's sins, making offerings so that through his role, God could give his people forgiveness and mercy. The high priest in that role was also the great advocate. He was the one who actually knew the people's needs, knew them, and then prayed about them to God. The high priest was also the great announcer telling God's people God's words of response, of welcome and transformation and instructing them in the faith. So, I mean, really, you take all this together, you could think of the high priest in ancient Israel as a kind of chief relational officer. Uh, the high priest said, 
I love God, and I love God's people, and it is my business to keep them together in mercy and in life forever. Jesus, Hebrews says, has become our high priest. He has entered into heaven, and his business, his job, his role, is to keep us with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit forever. And he knows how to do that because from God's perspective, he's God. He's 100% God. And he knows how to do that from a human perspective because he's human. He's 100% human. That's the first four chapters of Hebrews. And therefore, we're told in verse 415, for we do not have a high priest. This is verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> in the context of the incredible pressures of this church and their doubt and their fear that threaten to break their relationship with God, Jesus reminds them that the one whose life goal is to keep God and his people together by sacrifice and prayer and instruction and teaching is him. And that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses because he experientially understands all the different kinds of temptations and pressures that come to us in life. Jesus understands what it means to have his human family divided from him. Jesus understands what it means to be driven out of communities and to live hand to mouth. Uh, Jesus mean, no, understands what it means to suffer for the kingdom. Jesus understands malicious, false imprisonment and death. Jesus understands, in that sense even, martyrdom for the kingdom. He experienced all of that personally. See, Jesus experientially understands our pressures and what we therefore need to face them. So the Jesus who was tempted by Satan for 40 days in the desert experientially knows our need for encouragement after Temptation. That's Mark's gospel, where we're told the angels came and ministered to Jesus in the desert following those temptations. But Jesus, who wept over Jerusalem, knows our need to mourn and what it takes to mourn with hope and what it takes to mourn over those who don't understand the way that God is bringing peace. The Jesus who sweat drops of blood as he struggled to stick wholeheartedly to the Father's plan against the pressures of pain and rejection and who even on the cross kept his face turned toward God the Father, even in the darkness of judgment. Remember, Jesus says in the midst of judgment of hell on earth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? God turned, Jesus turned towards the Father in judgment, even as the Father turned away from him in wrath. He says, I will keep my eyes on you, even though I'm not sure that you're looking at me. Uh, the, the Trinity and the Incarnation are incredibly profound mysteries, aren't they? Um, that Jesus is our high priest, and he experientially knows the pressures and what we need to stay faithful to the Father in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus knows. Jesus understands the profound difficulty of being faithful in the midst of all this uh, tribulation, and that's why God... Uh, has the author write to these struggling saints and to us in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, 
to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, it's important to understand here that our high priest, Jesus, does not have the weaknesses of other human high priests. He never sinned. All the other high priests sinned. All God's leaders sin. Uh, In my weakness as your pastor, I have sinned against you, I'm sure, and I will sin against you. Jesus never did. Jesus never will. And that's why one of the reasons why he's a better high priest. He never sins against us. He never fails us. But he's also a better high priest because his success against the pressures of temptation and all that he faced never went to his head. It never produced arrogance or pride. It never produced cold-hearted judgment that looks down on people who aren't as successful as he is. No, like a good human high priest, the author of Hebrews says, and like a good human pastor of the New Testament says, Jesus, out of his own experience of pressure and suffering and hardship, deals gently, isn't that a beautiful word? Gently, with the ignorant and the wayward because he entered into our weakness starting at Christmas. He understands the power of these pressures and our frailty in the face of them, and he knows how to respond gently to us as we encounter them. And that's why it's so useful to think about Jesus' sympathy because it allows us to be confident in his gentleness when we doubt and when we're limited, when we fail, and we uh, have faults and, and struggles, Jesus experientially understands the pressures of our life. He experientially empathizes with our weakness. And that's why we can be confident in his gentleness and mercy as we go through seasons of doubt, and fear, and hardship. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but not just, he's not just able to sympathize with the pressures that come from the outside, Uh, temptations, being ostracized, sinned against, and all that. He's also able to sympathize with the pressures that come from inside of us, Uh, by which I mean, at least here this morning, uh, the pressure to obey the word and to say yes to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to say yes to loving our neighbor as ourselves. So just very quickly, uh, at the end of our passage, verses 7 through 9, we read this super interesting and I think encouraging description of Jesus. I'm going to read it again, 7 through 9, verse chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, that is when before his ascension into heaven, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And I know there's a lot here, uh, but let me just say two things. One is a comment on the text, and the second is a reflection on it. So here's my comment. Uh, In this context, to be a son means that you are the spitting image of your father. It means you talk like your dad, you walk like your dad, you live like your dad. So when Hebrew says that even though Jesus was a son, he learned obedience, it means going all the way back to the first chapter, that even though Jesus is perfectly righteous and holy, even though he already talked like the Father and spoke like the Father and lived like the Father because he is God's eternal Son, he is God himself, right? Uh, He learned obedience. Why does the author say that, though? I mean, what can it mean that Jesus learned obedience if he was already obedient and already looked 100% like God in all respects? Here's the answer. I believe that what the author must mean 
is that Jesus experienced the hardship of obedience. He experienced how hard it is to obey in a fallen world. He had the emotional experiences of heartache and sacrifice that come from saying yes to God's word in the Bible in the face of all the pressures, external and internal, that want to protect us from pain that want us to say no to Jesus. And so from that, here's my reflection. <clears throat> to my mind, uh, being obedient to Jesus is hard sometimes. Uh, not only because of the external pressures, but there are internal pressures too. The struggle to admit fault and repent. The struggle to sacrifice my time and resources to help my neighbor. The struggle to get up on church on Sunday and make it to worship. Uh, the struggle to discern the things that I need to say no to, even when those things are good, so that I can say yes to Jesus and his people. Uh, how many of us know the incredibly small pressure of leaving our phone aside so we can pick up the Bible instead? How many have had that internal dialogue? We're like, I really need to get off and pray, but, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they just keep going. Uh, how many of us know the slightly larger pressure of wanting to pray, but just not sitting down and making the time, scheduling it out on our calendars? How many of us know the really large pressure of wanting to confess sin and wanting to ask for forgiveness, but being terrified of doing so at the same time? In that internal struggle that says, I really need to go do this, but I'm totally afraid and they're not going to respond well and it's going to be bad and I don't want to have more pain. How many of us know that internal pressure? How many of us know the internal pressure of bearing the cost of forgiveness when someone who's deeply hurt us comes and says, would you forgive me? And you know that Christ has called you to not take your pound of flesh, but to bear those wounds in his name and to show them mercy and not wanting to do that, but wanting to do that, right? That internal conflict. Obedience sometimes has a cost as we struggle to say yes to Jesus against the no of self-protection that we sometimes feel. And I don't care if you're new to the faith or not, that cost is there and it's real. Uh, and if you've walked with Jesus for more than three seconds, you've felt that pressure in your heart. Uh, Jesus understands that cost too, is what Hebrews is saying. Jesus became human in order to experientially sympathize with both aspects of our lives. So out of his own experience of our human life, he can give us exactly the kind of grace and mercy that we need to be, to be helped by him. And that's why going back to chapter 4, verse 16, <coughs> excuse me, God encourages us to trust in our high priest, to use our high priest, to rely on his love and mercy and grace. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you have a place in your house that you pray at regularly, that's a good verse to just have permanently there to encourage you to enter in with confidence. My friends, the beauty of Christmas is that Jesus entered into our life so that we can be assured that he is giving us his mercy and his grace in time of need because he understands, because he has already borne the cost, because he is our great high priest who loves us and loves God and has made it his job to keep us together forever. So this Christmas season, as we face internal pressures, external pressures, as we 
maybe even have doubts about whether or not Jesus is worth all of the tribulation, uh, please hold fast your confession by drawing near to Jesus in worship like you are this morning and in prayer. Because Jesus is better. He is bigger. He is nearer. He is working. And he sympathizes. And because of that, he has all the mercy and kindness and help that you need. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus into the world in true human flesh so that as our great high priest, he would be able to sympathize with all our weaknesses and meet all our needs out of his own experience with all the grace and mercy and kindness of God. Uh, please help us to hold fast our confession of faith and to draw near to you always, trusting that in Christ there is always grace to help in time of need because Christ is always near us, sympathizing with us and helping us. We pray this all in his name. Amen.